This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, new guidelines on feeding infants that could finally turn around skyrocketing peanut allergies. I think the potential is enormous. We're looking at hopefully tens of thousands of cases prevented in the best case scenario each year. Peanuts and kids. Radio Health Journal returns. In healthcare today, the biggest certainty is uncertainty itself. Many people are wary of potential changes to our healthcare system. Dr. Richard Friedberg, president of the College of American Pathologists, says as new ideas emerge, it will be important to focus on the evidence. If you think about it, the confusion of accelerating change can create great opportunities to correct or improve practices. However, we need to realize that both good and bad things can slip in under the radar. That's where pathologists come in. Pathologists are the scientists of medicine, and uncertainty demands that medical judgments be more scientifically driven from both the patient and policy point of view. We have the responsibility to insist that an evidence-based approach become the norm, both inside and outside the laboratory, as well as in our healthcare policy. Uncertainty can drive creative thinking, but avoiding distraction and following the evidence will yield better results for everyone. Find out more at cap.org news. Over the last 20 years, school lunchrooms across the country have been turned on their heads. The old standby peanut butter and jelly sandwich isn't allowed in many schools that are totally peanut-free. And peanut-free tables are even more common because so many students are literally deathly allergic to peanuts. The number of those students is rising. In the past roughly decade and a half, peanut allergies have tripled and now affect about 2% of all American children. It turns out that we've brought on some of this ourselves. Back in 2000, new guidelines urged parents to avoid feeding any peanut products at all to very young children, especially those at high risk of allergies. In kids that were considered high risk for developing allergic diseases, and at the time it was considered anybody with two parents that had a history of allergic diseases, that it was recommended that certain foods be delayed. And for the purpose of these guidelines, the biggest recommendation was that peanut introduction be delayed until age three. That's Dr. Matthew Greenhot, assistant professor professor of pediatrics in the allergy and immunology section of Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's also chair of the Food Allergy Committee of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. In some for those recommendations, the advice was to avoid until age three, and that was felt to perhaps shield the child from being exposed to the food too early and developing an allergy against it. You know, the immune system might not be ready to tolerate these foods early on and that the early exposure would actually prime the immune system to see them as danger and to develop an allergic antibody against it that upon the next ingestion would lead to a clinical reaction. And this was based on a small study that had supported the delay in introduction done in the mid-90s at that point. But there was not a ton of data behind that. It was probably more expert opinion than clinical trial-based data. It was the best information that we had at the time. And in the face of what was being recognized as a growing public health problem, the rise not only in food allergy, but specifically in peanut allergy, the experts who formulated that guideline felt that this was a potentially protective step. But even with those guidelines, peanut allergies soared. Researchers eventually figured out that the theory was wrong. 
The rules were scrapped in 2008. The American Academy of Pediatrics retracted those guidelines, more or less, and said there is no benefit to delaying the introduction of any food past four to six months of life. And the sum of the evidence at that point was not showing that there was any benefit and that the prolonged delay made any sense. The main change there was don't delay past four to six months of life, but it wasn't specific for any food like the 2000 recommendations were. So it was don't delay anything past four to six months of life. But one of the limitations of that guideline was that it didn't actively recommend when to actually introduce. So you have this sort of passive recommendation to say don't delay, but it didn't say, but do this at this age and this at this age and this at that age, which led to a little bit of confusion. Surveys have shown that even with the retraction, parents have still been scared of peanuts, and many of them have held back on giving peanut products to their young kids. But now we know, rather than avoiding allergies, that helped create them. So now, finally, new guidelines are out on feeding infants peanut products, and they're pretty much exactly the opposite of the old ones. Researchers now know that the immune system can be trained at an early age. So rather than holding back on peanut products, the guidelines urge parents to feed them to kids starting at about four months old and keep doing it several times a week from then on. Greenhot is one of the authors of the new guidelines, and he says this time they're based on solid evidence, a number of studies done over the last 10 years. The first was a British study looking at two groups of Ashkenazi Jewish children. So genetically similar Jewish children, one in Tel Aviv and one in London in the mid-2000s. And the observation was that there was relatively little peanut allergy in the Israeli population, and there was tenfold more peanut allergy in the UK population. And when they looked and controlled for all the variables that they could, it turned out that the kids in Israel were being exposed to peanut well within the first year of life, whereas in the UK, they were following the UK food standards guidance at the time that said, if you're high risk, avoid until age three. So based on that one factor alone into observed populations, there was a tenfold difference in the rate of allergy. And that was a real head-scratcher saying, hmm, maybe there is something to this early introduction. However, that study didn't prove that introducing peanuts early was the reason that the Israeli children had 10 times less allergies. So scientists set out to devise a study to do just that. They recruited 640 infants and randomized them deliberately, half of them to get peanut within the first year of life, and the other half to deliberately avoid peanut until age five. Now, these kids were all very, very carefully screened. They all had to have severe eczema and or an existing egg allergy because those were felt to be the two highest risks for developing peanut allergy. So these kids were brought into the office, they had their introduction, and then they were told to eat at least two grams of peanut three times a week for the next five years. The other group was told to deliberately avoid the peanut for five years. At the end of the five years, they brought them back and they found that there was an 80% relative risk reduction between the two groups. The group that avoided had significantly more peanut allergy than the group that was introduced early. So, you know, that really confirmed what they had observed in the two populations, but this time they proved it in a very, very well-designed clinical trial. Yet another study has found that infants with no risk factors had fewer peanut allergies if they were introduced to peanuts at three months old rather than six months. So it's clear that there's a window of time when the immune system can be trained. The timing, the specific timing of introduction, that there is this critical window where you can expose the body to a potential allergen 
and they don't react. Somehow the immune system learns to tolerate it. So it'd be compatible with sort of human physiology on an evolutionary perspective. You know, you're not supposed to react to these foods that have great sources of protein and other nutrients that are readily available and, you know, tasty. It's unfortunate that we haven't quite figured out why a small percentage of the population does react to these foods, but we're learning more and more. And this is a huge piece of the puzzle that these kids with these risk factors, if you expose them early enough, you can prevent peanut allergy from developing in a significant amount of them. So that's just fantastic. Doctors can predict which children are most likely to develop a peanut allergy, and Greenhot says they deserve special care under the guidelines. They're infants who already have a skin condition that makes them prone to other allergies such as hay fever. The main criteria that I think is most applicable for the U.S. population will be eczema. And the main risk criteria are those kids with severe eczema. These kids should be well identified by the time that we're moving into this window where food should be introduced. So this is not eczema that developed sort of a week ago and went away with a little moisturization or even a one-time dose of an over-the-counter topical steroid. This is severe and persistent eczema that has failed to respond to frequent bathing, good moisturization, and escalating doses of topical steroids. It's probably been present since very, very early on in that child's limited lifespan at that point of time. And it's more than likely a problem that the parents are certainly well aware of and hopefully their doctor is also well aware of. So the severe eczema kids should be well identified. Egg allergy is another criterion, but most infants aren't introduced to egg until they're around a year old. So eczema is the main red flag. The peanut guidelines say that parents of those children should think about talking to their pediatrician at their child's four-month checkup. This is the point in time where normally the doctors start talking to the parents about transitioning away from primarily breast or bottle feeding and saying this is when we're going to start introducing solid foods over the next couple of months. And you give them the anticipatory guidance about trying green cereals or fruits and vegetables. We still want that to occur. That absolutely has to occur. However, the change here now is that we would like peanut in these kids with either severe eczema and or egg allergy as early as four to six months of life after they have tried and tolerated at least a few foods and have gotten used to the taste and texture and the coordination of solid foods. That's the ideal time for these children to be introduced to peanut. Now, because of the LEAP study and the data in the LEAP study, it was felt that these kids with severe eczema and or allergy were at the highest risk, and it was felt that a little bit more of a cautious approach should be taken with them. So these kids are being recommended to be referred to an allergy specialist for further testing. If a skin test for peanut comes back very positive, they already have an allergy and shouldn't get peanut products at all. That's a very small number of kids. Those with a mild to moderately positive result should have peanut introduction done in the doctor's office to be safe, but their allergy can still be staved off. The great majority of kids, though, have much less to worry about. Greenhot says the child can go home and have peanut products introduced there. For those kids, around six months of life, the recommendation is, after you've had a couple of solids introduced, to go ahead and introduce peanut-containing products, and this can be done at home. So they don't need the extra caution per se. You know, if a family is concerned and they're seeking referral, you know, if the doctor taking care of that child it has a concern, obviously go ahead and refer. That's what the allergy specialists are there for. But by and large, these kids really are not recommended to necessarily have to go to a doctor to have this introduction medicalized, and it can be done at home. And the guidelines 
guidelines actually include a number of different recipes for peanut-containing foods. I think one of the important points is people are hearing peanut, but not necessarily peanut-containing. A kernel of peanut is an absolute choking hazard for a child that age. Actually, any child under the age of four should not be exposed to a whole kernel of peanut. So we're talking about peanut-containing products. So baby puffs that contain peanut, thinned out smooth peanut butter, or other appropriate forms where the peanut is exceptionally well ground up or not in a form where the child could choke. Greenhot admits that some parents are concerned about the safety of the whole thing. After all, we've spent the last two decades hearing how we should keep peanuts away from our kids. But he says there's reason to be confident. This won't stop all cases of peanut allergy outright. There are still going to be cases, some kids who might react at home and some kids who might react under the doctor's supervision. What you can be reassured about from the baseline studies were the reactions that did occur were actually very few in number, and those that did occur were very mild. They all were mainly limited to the skin. I think people are afraid, and there's a little bit of folklore that sort of that first bite is going to be a severe, potentially fatal reaction. It's impossible to predict that. But if you look at the studies in infants, and this has been proven not only in this study from the UK, but if you look at the Australian experience where they did a large-scale population-based study of giving kids peanut around age one, again, in that scenario, most of those reactions were also mild and limited to the skin. After that, Greenhot says simply keep it up. We would like the parents to give this to them frequently, you know, a couple times a week. In the guidelines, there's a recommendation for, you know, aim for about two grams three times a week. If you can do that, great. If you can't, don't worry, you know, give it to them. Often, hopefully they'll like the flavor. It's got a lot of protein and a lot of other nutritional value, and hopefully it's a snack that these kids will enjoy. Greenhut admits that the complete turnaround in guidelines has slowed their adoption. But if parents act on the new rules, someday peanut-free schools could be a little less common. I think the potential is enormous. I mean, I think we're looking at hopefully tens of thousands of cases prevented in the best case scenario each year. You know, you think about there are 4 million children born each year approximately in the United States, and upwards of 20% of them might have eczema, and up to 2% might develop egg allergy. So, I mean, that's a lot, and every case counts. Obviously, the more the merrier, and we're hoping that on a population level, this will make a major impact. But I, I do think the potential is on the order of tens of thousands of cases a year, which would be fantastic. With parental buy-in, he says, the rise in peanut allergies could be reversed. You can see the guidelines on the website of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology at acaai.org. You can find out about all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.net. I'm Reed Pence. It's estimated more than 5 million Americans with diabetes have health benefits through Medicare. If you're one of them, you've likely had important decisions to make when it comes to getting test strips. With only select mail-order suppliers now accepting Medicare, many seniors have turned to their local pharmacy, and with good results. Because Walgreens accepts Medicare assignment and full-coverage supplemental insurance, you'll pay the same as mail-order, as low as zero out-of-pocket cost. Talk to your Walgreens pharmacist to find out more. Medical Notes this week. Diabetes is an even bigger killer than we thought. A new study in the journal PLOS1 finds that diabetes is responsible for about 12% of deaths in the United States, which would make it the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Researchers say that people with diabetes have about a 90% higher rate of death than people without the disease, but its responsibility as a cause of death has been significantly underreported. 
Since 1980, the number of people in the U.S. with diabetes has quadrupled. Symptoms of autism might be eased by a tuberculosis drug. A study in the journal Biological Psychiatry shows that the antibiotic D-cycloserin improved the social behavior of mice with autism. The mice had been engineered to have only one copy of the PCDH10 gene, which has been linked to the disorder. Researchers say the TB drug also improved the function of that gene, at least in mice. And finally, music or meditation may stave off some of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. A study in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease tested 60 seniors with a condition thought to be an early stage of Alzheimer's. The results showed that taking part in a beginning meditation for 12 minutes a day or listening to music for the same amount of time each day significantly improves memory and cognitive performance after three months. Music and meditation also improve sleep, mood, stress, and quality of life. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.